All right. Well, I'm so glad we could be here today. And I love when we get to open the Word of God together because I do believe this, I know many of you do as well, that uh, the Lord God Himself continues currently to use these ancient words to speak His truth. And uh, I think that's awesome. It's one of the things that convinces me of the truth of the Bible and that this really is God's Word, is the way that God continues to address our lives. Uh, somebody once said that the Bible is more up-to-date than tomorrow's newspaper. And we get something of what that means, right? That it addresses the, the heart issues that don't change and gives us the truth of God which we need uh, this day and every day. And today we're going to look at Luke chapter 18. And I really want to look at uh, from verses 9 to 30 especially. And we're calling this message from scarcity to generosity. Now I want to remind you that this is part of our series, uh, current series, which is called Loving as Jesus Loves. And this is a 12-week series, but the first five messages of the series are about how Jesus loves us and how that impacts us. And uh, then I think this is the fourth message today. So we've got one more message on how Jesus loves us, and Pastor Nancy will bring that message next week. And then we'll do about five weeks on how Jesus' love for us impacts and instructs and guides the way that we love one another. And so we'll do five weeks on loving one another. And then the last two weeks in this series will be about... Uh, Jesus' love for the world and how we're to love the world as we love with Jesus' love. So that's a little bit about where we're going. Uh, incidentally, I'll be gone the next two Sundays. I'm, I'm starting on my mission trip, and a lot of you know about that. I'm going to be going to Southeast Asia, training some pastors in a communist country in Southeast Asia, and I'll be doing that along with Pastor Joe Yoshihara from Cornerstone and his wife Rita. We'll be doing about three days of training in, uh, in Southeast Asia for pastors and church planters. Appreciate your prayers. I leave on October 1st, which is this coming Saturday. And um, after, after those days in Southeast Asia, then I'll be going to China to join uh, part of our team that's in China. You may know that Carly uh, Yip and Dan Ko, they're already there. Please continue to pray for them. And I will join them for about uh, a week of ministry in China uh, before I return. So anyway, appreciate your prayers for me, but also for the rest of our team. Uh, part of that team is Austin Yip, and I think he's coming back this Tuesday. So he's over there right now as well. So uh, thanks for your prayers. And let's talk about this, um, how Jesus loves us from scarcity to generosity. And basically what I want to talk about today is how if we, we can live with our eyes on us and we can live from a self-centered perspective, uh, but when our eyes are on us and on what we have and what we want and what we need, uh, we kind of live small and we kind of live insecure and we're sometimes just possessed by what we've got, and often that means that we're going to be controlled by fear and the fear of what we might lose. But when we trust Jesus and when we follow him wholeheartedly, everything changes. And when we trust Jesus and follow him wholeheartedly, then we can embrace a joyful generosity. So we want to talk about that a little bit from scarcity to generosity. And I'm going to do this today. I'm going to string together three stories. They're all consecutive in Luke chapter 18. Uh, but we may not have thought about them together. And this is what I'm finding that, you know, you know how one of the basic rules of reading the Bible and studying the Bible is you always try to read a passage in context, right? And so I want us to think about the stories today in context when you put these three stories together and uh, how do they uh, help us understand uh, what it means to, uh, to embrace the love of Jesus and how it transforms our lives, okay? So let's start in Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. Uh, in my Bible, this, this passage is called The Parable of the Pharisee and the Tax Collector, Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. Here's how it goes. 
To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Now, do you know anybody like that? Okay, don't point to anybody, but okay. To, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance and he would not even look up to heaven. And he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now here's Jesus's, here's the lesson of the parable. I tell you that this man, the tax collector, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. And that would have been shocking to his audience because Pharisees were the most respected religious leaders and, and Jewish officials, and tax collectors were despised, right? So when Jesus says the tax collector goes home justified before God, but not the Pharisee, it's a shocking, scandalous thing to say. And then Jesus concludes with this, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Okay? Now, let's talk about this a little bit. Jesus says the context here is he's talking to people who consider themselves righteous and they're confident of their own righteousness and their own standing before God. And not only that, but you know how we talk about being not righteous is a good thing, but self-righteous is not, right? Whenever we say don't be so self-righteous, it's sort of a, a negative derogatory thing. Well, so this Pharisee, he's kind of righteous. I mean, he does a lot of good things, right? But he's self-righteous and he's boasting of his assets, right? So Here's what's happening, right? He's confident of his own righteousness, and he's kind of looking down on other people. Thank you, God, that I'm not like the riffraff, that I'm not like the sinners, like I'm not like the tax collector. So he's boasting of his assets. On the other hand, the tax collector, you know what he's doing? He's confessing his sins. He's confessing his bankruptcy. Now, the Pharisee is very confident of his own righteousness. He thinks he's got it made. Uh, in his prayer, in fact, this you know, it's a weird prayer. It's a Thanksgiving prayer, but it's thank you that I'm so good and thank you that I'm not like people that are not so good, right? So, but basically his prayer is all about himself and it's about uh, all the accomplishments, all the reasons why he deserves God's love and God's justice. Uh, just, and there's no admission of inadequacy. There's no plea for mercy. There's no acknowledgement that he needs God's help. Instead, you know what he's doing? He's exalting himself, isn't he? He's coming to God, but rather than humbling himself, he's exalting himself. God, here's all the reasons why you ought to bless me. I deserve it. Right? Now, the tax collector, on the other hand, he recognizes his need and his unworthiness. We're told he doesn't even dare to look up at heaven. You know, often when we pray, at least the way I was taught in Sunday school, is we, what do we do? We close our eyes, we bow our heads, we fold our hands. Uh, and that's good, I, you know, that's cool, but it, nowhere in the Bible does it say that's what you're supposed to do when you pray. Uh, in fact, often when you see people praying in the Bible, uh, they're lifting their eyes to the heavens, they're lifting their hands to the heavens, so they would look up, and this poor tax collector, he feels so guilty, and uh, he doesn't even dare even look up to heaven. And then he's beating his breast like, oh man, I'm so sorry, God. He's beating his breast, and then he's crying out, God, have mercy on me a sinner. 
So, so here's his situation. He stands at a distance. He doesn't even look up to heaven. He's beating his breast, which is a sign of sorrow and remorse. And he cries out to God, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So he's got no illusions about himself. He's confessing his guilt, and he's acknowledging that he needs grace. He needs love. And he's humbling himself before the Lord. And, and the twist in the story is, uh, who gets justified? And, and, you know, we may know this story so much, it's no surprise to us. But again, to Jesus' audience, this is a shocking pronouncement. He says, the tax collector goes home justified before God. The Pharisee goes home, but he's not justified before God. And then Jesus draws this lesson. He says, anybody who exalts themselves will be humbled. But if you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. I like the saying that if we don't humble ourselves, if you don't humble yourself, then there's going to come a time where God will have to humble you. And you really don't want that. You know, I mean, it's better if you humble yourself. If you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. If you exalt yourself, you'll be humbled. Okay, so great story, and I think we get the point. Now, Jesus, uh, uh, the Bible next tells us in Luke 18 another story that seems completely different, but I think there's some uh, parallels. Here's the next story. It's Luke chapter 18, verses 15 to 17. Uh, the title in my Bible is The Little Children and Jesus. You know, you know that these, uh, these section headings, they're not in the original language of the Bible. The translators have added those to aid us in our understanding. But uh, Luke 18, 15 to 17, about the little children and Jesus, here's how it goes. People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. And, you know, and babies can't walk, right? That somebody has to bring them to Jesus. Uh, when the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. I don't think it was the babies. I think they're rebuking the parents. Like, don't bother Jesus. Jesus is busy. He's serious. He's headed to, toward Jerusalem. He's, got a, he's on a mission. Uh, don't bother Jesus. So, so when the disciples saw the parents bringing their babies to Jesus because they want Jesus to lay his hands on them and touch them, the disciples rebuked the parents, but Jesus called the children to him and said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And again, that'd be a shocking statement in his culture, in his time, because children were not regarded highly. They weren't respected. It wasn't like today, everybody, you know, fondled, you know, everybody pays all this attention to babies. And uh, I remember when, <laughs> you know, we have two daughters and, and they're all grown up now, but when they were little, Sometimes I would be carrying Rachel. She'd be, you know, like, I don't know, 12 months old, and um, I'd be carrying her. And I, I never expected this as, as a dad, that I, I'd be holding her at church. And this is when we were still, in, you know, pastoring a church in, in Northern California. And uh, I'd be holding her at church. And I, I'm not kidding. People would come up and talk to the baby. Baby can't even understand or talk. People would come up and talk to them. Oh, Rachel, how are you today, Rachel? And, and they wouldn't even acknowledge me. They wouldn't look at me. They wouldn't smile at me. They wouldn't say, hi, Wayne, or hi, Pastor Wayne. And, and it's like, all I am is I am the stand that's holding the baby. You know? I want to say, excuse me, I'm here too. <laughs> but, you know, that's how, that's how we, we are with babies in our culture. And I love it. I love babies, and I want to have some grandbabies. But, um, <laughs> but no pressure to anybody. <laughs> But in Jesus' culture, it wasn't like that. I mean, babies and children were disregarded. In fact, they were viewed as the parents' property. You've heard that it's saying children are to be seen and not heard. It was a little bit like that, or almost like children are to be not seen and not heard. You know, just keep them out of the way, because we're doing grown-up stuff. We're doing important stuff. And so in that context, the disciples are saying, 
Parents, keep your children away from Jesus. Jesus is a, he's a serious man doing serious stuff. And yet Jesus says, wait, hold on, time out. Bring those children to me. And then he says something, again, astounding and radical and shocking in his culture. He says, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Now, what's that all about? And, you know, and what's he saying? Is he saying, you're supposed to be like a little child, you know, demanding and cry when you don't get what you want and throw a toddler's tantrum when, you know, when you don't get your way? Is that what he's saying? I don't think so. Or, or is he saying, oh, be like a child, constantly interrupting adult conversation. Uh, or just be spoiled and self-focused brats. He's not saying that at all. What is it about children that Jesus wants us to emulate? Uh, when he says, if, if anyone doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a little child, they will never enter it. And I, I think one thing about children, for the most part, is they love to receive stuff, right? You, you never hear a little child say, oh, no, that's too good for me. I don't want that, you know? It's like, gimme, gimme, gimme. More, 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 right? Uh, so I think one thing about children is they recognize that they need something that they don't have, right? They recognize that they're in desperate need, and they may not recognize this, but children, they are. They're in desperate need. They need care. They need constant care. I remember uh, when we had little ones, I, I remember this thought occurred to me one day, you know, for Tina and I thought, why is it that it takes two adults, it feels like 24-7, to take care of one little baby, you know? And it just felt like, you know, we're so preoccupied with uh, taking care of our baby that I started to think, God, what did we ever do before we had kids? This is our life now, and it's a 24-7 it's a kind of life. Uh, it's a good life, but it was, uh, you know, busy. So <clears throat> one thing about children is they are in desperate need. You know, they, they can't feed themselves, clothe themselves, house themselves, transport themselves, and all of that. So I think when Jesus says, you've got to receive the kingdom like a little child, it's, it's a, it means you, you've got to recognize you're in desperate need. Remember when Jesus gave the Beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew chapter 5, and, and it begins with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. And you know what that means? It means blessed are those who are spiritually poor, who recognize their spiritual poverty. If you recognize, you know, we're all spiritually poor, Right? But most people don't recognize it. He says, blessed are you when you recognize your spiritual poverty because yours is the kingdom of heaven. And so I think this is what he's saying is we have to be like little children in the sense that we are in desperate need and that we recognize that. We acknowledge that we need something that we don't have. We need forgiveness. We need grace. We need God's care. Uh, we don't, you don't hear that sense of need from the self-righteous, from the people that are exalting themselves from the way that the Pharisee prays in the temple. You don't hear that sense of need. Uh, another thing about uh, uh, children that I think we're to emulate is um, not only re recognize that we're in desperate need, but the willingness to depend on someone else. You know, a lot of us, we have got trust issues, we've got control issues, and we even impose that on God, like, you know, oh God, don't control me, or God, I can't trust you. And, but children, they have to depend on someone else, right? You know, it's not like they're going to go out and earn their own living or, you know, buy their own groceries or anything. So I think this is something about children is that uh, they have desperate needs and they're dependent and willing to trust somebody besides themselves. And I think in that sense, Jesus is saying, you know, if you don't receive the kingdom like little children, you're not going to enter it. You could be a Pharisee, you could be a tax collector, you could be rich, you could be poor, you could be well-educated, you could be religious or not, but he says, if you don't 
come to that point of recognizing your need and then willing to, willingness to depend on God, then you're really not going to enter the kingdom. And so, you know, you think about that Pharisee, he's kind of like a self-made man, but he can't really make himself worthy of heaven, of the kingdom. Okay, so that's the second story, the little children and Jesus. And, and so now maybe you can think about the parallel between the first two stories. In the first story, there's a Pharisee who is self-righteous and self-exalting, and there's a tax collector who, he's more like the little child, right? He recognizes he needs something he can't, he doesn't have. He says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I need mercy. And so in, in a sense, he's, he's, Jesus says he's going to go home justified because he recognized his need and he called out to God, right? And then the little children, it's the same kind of deal. Little children uh, are going to receive the kingdom if they're like that, right? Dependence, dependent on God and willingness to trust him. Now, all that sets... I think the stage and the background for this passage that I want to talk about today, which in my Bible is called uh, The Rich and the Kingdom of God. Some of your Bibles will call this section uh, The Rich Young Ruler. This is uh, Luke 18, verses 18 to 30. Let me read the beginning of this. Okay, a certain ruler, and we might think of leader, influencer, right? A certain influencer asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is a story, it's a true story, not a parable. This is a true story, encounter with Jesus, and it's recorded in three of the Gospels, here in Luke 18, also uh, there's another version in Matthew 19, and there's another version in Mark 10. I think it's the same story, just told three different ways. Uh, but this is what we know from, from the other passages. We know that this man is not only rich, but that he's young, and here he's called a ruler. I want you to just think of it. He's a leader. He's, I, I guess you might call him an affluent young influencer. He's an affluent young adult who, who's influential, and, uh, and he's a leader. So he comes to Jesus, and he says, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. Now, you know the commandments. Now, and Jesus lists here uh, some of the commandments, the, some of the Ten Commandments, not all of them, just five of them. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. I think that's commandments 6 through 9 in the Ten Commandments. So just as illustration, Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. Now, here's the young affluent influencer's response. This is in verse 21. He says, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Really? I, I, I don't know. But, you know, he's, he thinks he has, and, and maybe he has, uh, at least externally. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, now, before I say this, you know, in Mark's version of the story, it says this. When Jesus saw that man, he loved him. Jesus loved this man. It's not like, oh, I'm down on you. I'm going to condemn you now. I'm going I'm to just really punish you. Jesus loves this man. And with a heart full of love, he says a hard thing. And so here's what Jesus says. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come, follow me. And when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, which is pretty much impossible, right, than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And again, this would have shocked his listeners, his disciples, because they're, you know, in their understanding, it's like the richer you are, the more God loves you and the more God has blessed you. So if anybody's going to get into the kingdom, it's the rich. 
But Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? And Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. I want you to think about this young man. We know he's young. We know he's wealthy. We know that he's a leader, an influencer. We call him the rich young ruler. He's a self-made man. And he's living a self-made life. And he's trying to find a self-made way to inherit eternal life. Remember, he comes to Jesus. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? As if he could do something. He's a self-made man. He's done a lot of things. He's achieved a lot. But he's in, what, now, you know, you know, what's next? You know, on my bucket list, before I die, I want to make sure that I have eternal life. So, you know, I've, I've done these other things, got my education, you know, got my job. Maybe he has a spouse, and maybe he has kids, maybe he even has grandkids. He is checking off things on his bucket list. He says, you know, don't want to die without knowing if I have eternal life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? A good question. But he kind of sounds sort of self-justifying because when Jesus starts listing some of the commandments, he says, well, you know what? Been there, done that. Unlike, you know, tax collectors and those kind of people, I have kept all these things since I was a young boy. So I'm thinking at this point, this influential young leader is sounding a lot like the Pharisee who was praying in the temple, right? God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. He says, I'm a good person. Shouldn't I be saved because I'm a good person? Now, Jesus said, you know, in the parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector, only one of those two men is going to go home justified before God, and it ain't the Pharisee. It's the tax collector. So I'm thinking this. This young, wealthy, young a leader that comes to Jesus, he's actually in spiritual danger here because he's siding more with the Pharisee who's boasting in himself, his own accomplishments. He's not asking for mercy. He's self-righteous. He's exalting himself, and Jesus says, you exalt yourself, you're going to be humbled. Right? So he's actually in grave spiritual danger even though he doesn't realize it. And then Jesus had said, well, you know, if you don't receive the kingdom like a little child, you know, in dependence, in need, in trust, uh, you're not going to receive it at all. So, you know, based on, based on what Jesus has just said, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, and what he's just said about en- the need to enter the kingdom like a little child, this young affluent influencer, is he's not going to make it. He's in grave spiritual danger. So how can he become justified before God? How can he receive the kingdom of God? Uh, is being a good person good enough? to inherit eternal life. And, you know, I think Jesus is saying no. Otherwise, when he said, you know the commandments, and then the man says, well, I've kept all these since I was a boy, Jesus would have just said, okay, good enough. You're good. (laughs) You You got eternal life, man. You you made it. You qualified. But Jesus doesn't do that. So, despite this young man's moral lifestyle, this upscale young leader is lacking in something essential. I mean, he's kind of proud of his righteousness. He's claiming that he's kept these commandments since his youth. He's sounding like that Pharisee in the temple, boasting in all of his qualifications. Uh, He's confident in his his own righteousness. But remember what Jesus said about such people. They're not going to be justified before God. They don't go home justified before God. They don't inherit eternal life. And so the man's actually in danger. And Jesus loves him. 
So Jesus is going to help him. For that young man, despite his affluence, despite his morality, he's not going to enter the kingdom of God unless something else changes. He's not going to go home justified. So Jesus says, one thing you lack. Okay, I want you to think about this. If you had to put it in your own words, what's the one thing the man lacks? I mean, he's already got morality. He's already got wealth. He's already got position at a young age, influence, status. And yet Jesus says, one thing you lack. What is that? Any thoughts? Jesus is saying, you're lacking something that's going to enable you to experience eternal life. You're lacking something that's going to enable you to enter into the kingdom of God. You're lacking something that would enable you to be justified before God. What is it? Any thoughts? Anybody want to share a thought? What? Lordship. Okay, lordship. He's lacking lordship. Being humble. Good. Other, other thoughts? I'm not looking for one right answer. I'm just thinking, what do you think? Because I've wrestled with this question a long time. Jesus says, one thing you lack. What? Faith. Faith. Something's lacking, right? And, and to me, it's kind of convicting because it's saying, you know, you could live a moral life. You could be a religious person. You could be a good citizen. <laughs> you know, you could have a lot going for you. You could have a good job and a good house and, and all that. But you also might be somebody that Jesus would say, you know, one thing you lack. Jesus says this. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. And I think that means mourn over their sin and mourn over their guilt, mourn over their unworthiness. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. He says, blessed are the meek or the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, not reveling in their own self-righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, God's righteousness, for they will be filled. So like somebody said, you know, what does he lack? Well, he lacks that humbling. He, he's, lacks, he's not humbling himself in order to let God exalt him. Uh, he's not receiving the kingdom of God like a little child from a, a place of need and dependence and trust. Uh, I, I think he's kind of addicted to his wealth when you think about it. Um, he's, he lacks deliverance from his addictions. I mean, he can't imagine life without his money. To him, his money defines his life. His affluent lifestyle, it would be unthinkable to live without that. He's like a lot of young affluent people today. His comfortable lifestyle has become his idol. He's clinging to something that, that is more important to him than being justified by God, more important than inheriting eternal life, uh, more important than receiving the kingdom of God, uh, this man is addicted to his affluence. And maybe he's addicted to his influence as well, to being a leader. He's trapped by his toys. He's possessed by his possessions. The thought of giving it up to follow Jesus is unthinkable. And so he walks away. The Bible says he walks away very sad because he's very wealthy. I think what he lacks, and somebody said it, he lacks faith. He lacks trust in Jesus to provide for his needs. Right? Jesus says, one thing you lack, go and sell everything, give the money to the poor. Uh, in another parallel passage, he says, you're going to have treasures in heaven, and then come and follow me. 
And, and he, he lacks the willingness to trust Jesus. He lacks the freedom to follow Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was martyred for his faith uh, under Hitler's regime, he was actually uh, hanged just three weeks before the, the, the World War II ended, and he was in one of those Nazi concentration camps, and he was a wonderful witness for the Lord in that camp, uh, that place of death and, and disease. But he wrote this book called The Cost of Discipleship. It's a Christian classic and uh, well worth reading, but there's, there's, a, there's a section in there that has really often challenged me, sometimes haunted me, uh, and, and also inspires me. And here's what Bonhoeffer says in The Cost of Discipleship. If we answer the call to discipleship, where will it lead us? What decisions and partings will it demand? To answer this question, we will have to go to Him, for only He knows the answer. Only Jesus Christ, who bids us follow Him, knows the journey's end. But we do know that it will be a road of boundless mercy. For discipleship means joy. And Bonhoeffer wrote that. He didn't know what the journey's end would be for him. In his earthly life, his journey's end was being hanged in a Nazi, a Nazi concentration camp. But we know for Bonhoeffer that was not the end. That was the day that he got ushered into eternal life in the kingdom of God and paradise where he would see his Savior Jesus face to face. Only Jesus Christ who bids us follow him knows the journey's end. But we do know that it will be a road of boundless mercy. Discipleship means joy. And there are written testimonies of people who were with Bonhoeffer in his last days in prison, who were with Bonhoeffer and saw him the day that he was hanged. And they said, you never saw somebody with so much peace, so much contentment before the Lord. Not in fear, uh, not in panic, not in regret, but just a man that you know, was walking with Jesus, knew his Savior so well, knew that you know, in a moment I'm going to get to see him face to face. People like that, you just can't defeat them because there's this implicit trust in Jesus. My life is in his hands, and whether by my life or whether by my death, uh, may the name of the Lord be praised. I just want him to be glorified. So when Jesus says these things to him, and we think, wow, Jesus really asked him to do something tough. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. I think what Jesus is doing is he's really trying to set this man free. He's trying to set him free from his idolatry. You know, whatever uh, is of utmost importance to you, that can easily become an idol, right? Uh, that which uh, holds the preeminent, preeminent place in your heart, that, that's your idol. And how can we get free? How can we ever get free enough to follow Jesus? We're going to live with this scarcity mentality about life is all about preserving what's mine and trying to get more if I can. So when Jesus comes along and says, you know what, I want you to offer up your life as a living sacrifice. Come follow me. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and come follow. Let's do life together. That's going to be very threatening because, I, but Lord, what about my stuff? And what about my plans? And what about my possessions? And what about my position? Imagine how scary it must have been for the wealthy young leader to hear Jesus' words that day. You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. That's a scary thing for that man, right? I mean, what's he afraid of? Radical changes to his lifestyle. Divesting himself of all of his wealth. Uh, the uncertainty of following Jesus. What partings will it demand? Where will it take me? Worries about not having enough. 
Maybe he's thinking about his pension or his retirement, insecurity about the future, about his later years, about provision. Now, it is true that Jesus did not say to every prospective follower, he didn't say these same words, right? He didn't tell everybody, you've got to go sell everything you have, give the money to the poor, and then come follow me. So why does he say it to this man, to this wealthy young influencer? And I think it's because, and we've seen this, he's like those who are confident of their own righteousness who will not get justified with God. Uh, he's not like the, the little children who are going to receive the kingdom of God. He doesn't recognize his desperate need, and he's not willing to trust in another, not willing to trust in Jesus to provide for him. So I think that's why Jesus says these challenging words for, to him. It's like, get rid of anything that's going to prevent you from following. For him, it was his wealth. For you, it may be something else. You know, letting go of some of your dreams or your goals or your aspirations. But whatever keeps you from following Jesus, are you really going to choose that over Jesus? That's, the, that's your idol. You're going to spend your life worshiping idols or worshiping the Lord God? So when Jesus challenges this rich man to sell everything and give to the poor, here's what he's doing. He's calling him to a lifestyle of compassion for the poor. The man only cared about himself. He's amassing all this wealth just to be used for his own comfort, his own status, his own enjoyment, his own glory. Jesus is calling him to a life of compassion for the poor. And Jesus is challenging him to live generously by making his resources available to serve God's cause and God's mission and God's purpose, the things that are on God's heart, right? You take care of the things on God's heart and God will take care of the things on your heart. Do we believe that? Do we really believe that? Jesus is inviting the man to break free from the, his addiction to affluence. He's inviting him to humble himself so that God can exalt him. He's inviting him to receive the kingdom of God like a child in desperate need, in dependence on Jesus to give him what he could never earn or deserve or achieve. And Jesus is beckoning the man. He loves him. He says, get freed up because I want you to come follow me. It's like Jesus is saying, come join my tribe. We'll do life together. And I've come to give life, life in all its abundance and life in all its fullness. And these things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you're going to have some trouble, some tribulation. But be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. And it's Jesus' love that sets us free. That sets us free to trust, to follow, to obey. And in him we find life. A lot of you know this, but let me read these verses from John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him, in the Son, in Jesus, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. John 3, verses 16 and 17. And then John 3, verse 36 Whoever believes in the Son, in Jesus, has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. And so when Jesus calls people to him, to believe in him, to trust in him, to follow him, that is the best thing. Those who have the Son have the life. Those who don't have the Son do not have the life, but God's wrath remains on them. And he's saying there's a way to get out from under God's wrath. So Jesus' love 
sets us free. But for the rich young leader that day, getting free felt too costly, too painful. I would rather cling to my addictions. I would rather hold on to my idolatry, even though it means I'm walking away from Jesus. And he walks away, the Bible says, very sad because he's very wealthy. And I think about this because I'm very concerned about significance and meaning in life. And I think about this. So we don't know anything else about the man. We don't know his name. We don't know what his life was like after that. Maybe he continued to be wealthy the rest of his life. Maybe he was a powerful influencer throughout his career. Or, you know, maybe like some people who win the lottery and they end up bankrupt. You know, we really don't know anything about his life. But this I know. He missed his destiny. Isn't that right? Jesus says, I want you to come and, and, and join my tribe. I want you to do life with us. And uh, who knows, maybe, you know, we'd have the gospel of rich, the rich young ruler, you know. Uh, uh, who knows, you know, he, he could have gone down in history. He could have been used to affect, you know, nations. We just don't know because whatever Jesus wanted for his life, he turned it down. No, Jesus, there, I've got my agenda. I've got my plans. I can't let go. It was Jim Elliott, the missionary who was martyred at a young age in Ecuador. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He's no fool who gives what he cannot keep, hanging on to this life and its, it's uh, you know, uh, things I'm holding apart from God. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. In other words, to those who give God everything, then God gives himself. How can we move from this scarcity, scarcity mentality where we're living to hoard and, and we're living in fear of what we might lose and we're living in insecurity? How can we move from scarcity to generosity? Uh, you know how we can? Look at the end of our passage today. Uh, in Luke 18, uh, verse 28 to 30, 30, Simon Peter and the other disciples, they just saw that whole encounter with the the wealthy young influencer. And they saw the man walk away sad. And then Simon, Simon Peter says to Jesus, uh, Luke 18, verse 28, Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. And it's, we have left everything that we had in order to follow you, Jesus. We did what you told that guy to do, and he couldn't do it, he didn't do it, but we did it. One of the parallel passages, uh, Peter adds this question, what shall become of us? Like, if I follow Jesus, well, who, you know, will we be taken care of? Will it be all right? And here's what Jesus says. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. When I read that, I was thinking about this couple that I met in Japan once. I've done a lot of mission trips, but I've only done one mission trip in Japan. It was in 2003, and it was the first time that Lighthouse sent out a mission team. And some of us went to a place in Tokyo, and, and we, were, we were really there to, to really care for the missionaries. And, and Japan's a real hard mission field. Sometimes they call it the missionary's graveyard because there's so little responsiveness to the gospel. And even after all these years of missionary work, still today there's... Less than 1% of Japan is Christian, and it's a tough field. We went over to encourage the missionaries. Anyway, I, I met this couple there that, when we were there, and uh, they're a, an older Caucasian couple, and they were retired, 
and they showed us pictures, and they showed us pictures of, the, they're from the Midwest, I forget exactly where, Michigan or something, uh, Wisconsin, and they showed us pictures of their house, uh, and they showed us pictures of their children, and they showed us pictures of their grandchildren, all living in the U.S., and here now in, in their, comfort, what should have been their comfortable retirement, and just, you know, take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry, enjoy your house, enjoy your children, enjoy your grandchildren. Instead, they're over in Tokyo in the missionary graveyard serving the Lord. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, that's incredible. Like, oh, this huge sacrifice. Oh, you must be so miserable. Oh, you must miss your, you know, family so much. And, and you know what they said? Yeah, we miss them, but we're happy here because we are right where God wants us to be. And right at that stage of life where they could have just rested in their, you know, affluence and comfort, uh, they're, they're still, I love this, they're still following Jesus. Jesus, what's next? Where do you want me to be? For them, it was in Tokyo and uh, serving uh, in a very difficult field. But I love that, you know, and, and I've had a lot of opportunities to travel around the world and I meet a lot of missionaries. And I used to think, oh, missionaries, poor missionaries, they have to be away from home. They don't enjoy the comforts. Sometimes they don't have, you know, uh, all the, you know, uh, comforts of home and all that, and they're away from their family. I used to just pity missionaries until I went out in the field and visited some and met with some and rubbed shoulders with some salty saints and, and served alongside of them. And, and there's a little bit of envy, like, man, these people, they're, they're so focused. They're, they know exa they're exactly where God wants them to be, and they're doing what God wants them to do. And, uh, you know, they're, they're just offering up their lives, and, and they're seeing God work. And, and I just thought, we don't have to pity the missionaries. We ought to be like them in this sense. Not everybody's called to go overseas and be a missionary, but we ought to be like them in this sense. You take your life, your one and only life, and you say, God, here am I. And what I have and what I hope to have and, and what I possess, but also my gifts and talents and abilities, my financial resources, Lord, it all belongs to you. And I'm offering myself to you, so I'm offering what I have to you. And use it however you want. It's not a question of whether I'm going to obey Jesus or not or follow him or not. The question is, Lord, how do you want me to invest myself and, and my time and my talents and my treasure to serve you and your purposes? And he may call you overseas to be a missionary, but more likely he's going to call you to do something here. And then you have to decide, you know, which camp you're going to be. You know, the wealthy, affluent young leader that's just living for himself, or you're going to follow Jesus. And when you follow Jesus, then you embark on this great adventure. And when Jesus Christ is at the center of your life, then the circumference will take care of itself. Seek first my kingdom, Jesus says, and, you know, I'll take care of the rest. And delight yourself in the Lord, and, you know, he'll take care of you. He'll bless you. So, how do we move from scarcity to generosity? Well, you seek Him. And you trust Him. And you know that those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. God will take care of you. Let's pray. When our eyes are on us and what we have, we live, we live small and insecure, possessed by our possessions and controlled by fear and insecurity. When we trust Jesus and follow him wholeheartedly, it's then and only then that we can embrace a joyful generosity.
So Lord, thank you that when you call us to follow you, that's the call of love, of mercy. And when we follow you, in a sense, it's like we risk everything in order to gain everything. We gamble on the invisible and we risk all that we see and taste and feel, but we know the risk is worth it because there's nothing more insecure than just trusting in the things of this world. And there's nothing more secure than trusting in the Lord with all our hearts. So thank you, Lord, for inviting us into your tribe to do life with you. And thank you, praise you that that life is good. In Jesus' name, amen.